I'd have you open your Bible to the book of Judges. Way back in May through October of 2018, it doesn't really seem possible that it's been that long. We studied through the book of Joshua. And it's been my hope and intent in the intervening time to get back to the book of Judges, which carries on the conquest of Canaan that began under Joshua. So this morning, we're going to begin our trek through, and it's not my intent to preach every verse and every word. The pattern is going to be what we find this morning. We're going to go from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way over through the fifth verse of chapter 2. The book of Judges is a book that we are somewhat to very familiar with. Who doesn't know something of Gideon and his 300 men? It's contained in the book of Judges. Or the strength of Samson and his hair and Delilah. Or thinking about Jephthah. Who hasn't been puzzled as you've read the account of Jephthah and his daughter, wondering what the purpose of God is in all of that? How often do some turn to the book of Judges and see Deborah there and justify their view for women's role in the church, in leadership, or even behind the pulpit? We read all of these familiar names, and as if it weren't enough that they are contained here in the book of Judges, the writer to the Hebrews singles out four of them and includes them in what we refer to as the faith hall of fame. The 32nd verse of chapter 11, he says, And what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah. Interesting. We read Jephthah and are puzzled, and the writer to Hebrews includes him here in the Faith Hall of Fame. But for all of these well-known names, there are some obscure names, like Shamgar. Any of you know anything about Shamgar? Gideon gets around 100 verses in the book of Judges as being one of the judges. Shamgar gets one verse, and it's in chapter 3, in verse 31, and this, although he is mentioned again in Deborah's song by name only in chapter 5, verse 6, in the 31st verse of chapter 3, this is what we read about him. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he delivered Israel. One of the things that you'll discover and be reminded of as we read throughout these judges, most of them for all of their failures, were men that God used mightily and greatly. Not just Samson, but think about this unknown judge with an ox goad killing 300, excuse me, 600 men and delivering Israel through that. I want to begin by giving several points of Introduction, And this is really to help us understand the book of Judges as a whole and its place in the scriptures. And to do that, we're going to turn to the very first verse and the very last verse 
So if you look at chapter one, verse one, and we read there after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. If you skip all the way over to the very last verse, chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is repeated twice in this book. It's not only, not only found in the last verse, but also in the sixth verse of chapter 17. In these two verses, the beginning and the end set the book of Judges in its rightful place. After Joshua died and before there were kings. We find these 12, some number them 15, if you separate Barak and Deborah into two judges, when really there's just one office filled by them both, and then also add to that Eli and Samuel, you'll come up with 15. But strictly speaking, there were 12 judges that ruled in a specific way. We're going to talk about three of those ways here in just a moment. But just thinking of this verse that is repeated twice, how applicable is it to our own day? Men and women doing what is right in their own eyes. Proverbs speaks of this also in two verses. Repeated, verbatim. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So as you read and study the book of Judges... In a real sense, this book pictures for us what it is like for a people, even the professed people of God, to do right according to themselves. When it is convenient, they'll walk in the ways of the Lord. When it costs them greatly, they will decide for themselves which way they should go. One of the things that is missed if we're not careful in the book of Judges is to see the judge behind the judges. To see God behind them, using them as men to accomplish his purposes. And so I want to try to understand how the book of Judges fits into the larger whole of the Bible. And it's one of the things that we increasingly need to see that from beginning to end, the scriptures tell the story of God. There are not several different stories. The central theme of the entirety of Scripture is the gospel of Christ. And even especially in the book of Judges, we see the Lord Jesus. And I want to read you something that I've, I've taken out of the introduction to the book of Judges in the Reformation Study Bible. I commend that study Bible to you. It's helpful. One of the things that I like about it the most, the preface to every book. There is a section entitled Christ in, in this instance, Judges, or Christ in Ruth, or Christ in Philippians, whatever the book may be. And here is the short paragraph out of that introduction. I think it's helpful, so I'm going to read it to you in its entirety, answering the question, where is Christ in this? As the nation of Israel became increasingly immoral, this was reflected even in the judges, in the morality of the judges. Each successive judge had more flaws and fell further short of the ideal picture of a leader 
than the judge before him. In addition, the deliverances they secured were short-lived periods of peace and rest for the land of Israel. These deficiencies encourage us to yearn and long for an ultimate deliverer, to usher in a final rest for the people of God. In other words, the tenor of the entire period of the judges cries out for the promised Messiah who would come and once and for all redeem and even judge his people forever. We can't help but see failure after failure, even in the best of these judges. One of the things that we take heart in and are comforted in is that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, rules perfectly and never fails. So the second point of introduction, I want to ask this question. Why is the book called Judges? Why not some other type of of name denoting its history? Well, when you look at the judges, they have three functions, really. And these three functions will come out more clearly in some of them than others. But they were military leaders, Gideon and his 300 men, and even Shamgar that we read about with his ox goad killing 600 men, show us the military side of the judges, Samson. In all of his strength, and even through his sin, show us the military side. But they are also administrators of justice, thus the name judges. They stood in the place and passed their judgments upon the affairs of men. It's important to note here that they were not priests. And that brings in their place in the religious life of Israel. Not only did they lead the military and administer justice among the people, but in religious affairs, they were those who were to model what it meant to be faithful to the covenant that God had made between Israel and himself. And they fail miserably because they're men. One of the things that we're going to to see with each one of these judges is the cycle that repeats itself over and over. After this introduction that's getting kind of lengthy, we're going to see the first cycle. But the cycle runs like this. After a period of peace and tranquility, the people provoke God by false worship. In response to that, God raises up a people to bring oppression and discipline and chastisement. Then the people feeling the effect of the chastisement begin to cry out to God and he hears them and ushers in a judge. Who then brings peace for a time and then the cycle repeats itself. After that time of peace, there is disobedience, chastisement, cry for mercy, God hears them, and you can replay that cycle out over and over and over again throughout this book of Judges. And this is where we find one of the central lessons or themes from this book, the faithfulness of God to keep his word and the inability of the people to keep their part. 
This is a great contrast between the old and the new. And aren't you thankful that being members of the new covenant, all of our obedience, Christ performed for us. We are no longer subject to attempting to pave a way through our own righteous deeds. And in summarizing this lesson learned through this cycle, Andrew Fawcett in his commentary says this, Throughout the book, God appears as maintaining his own glory against the idols of the surrounding heathen and not sparing even his own people whenever they turned from him and conformed themselves to the vanities of the world and always hearing his people's cry and delivering them when they turned to him in repentance. We can't go any further without asking the question, is all of this fair to the Canaanites? This is particularly applicable to our own day. Everybody's concerned with fairness, right? Is this fair? Let me, let me remind you from the scriptures something about the Canaanites. This is what some refer to as the moral problem of the conquest of Canaan. Was it fair and right for Joshua and Caleb going and slaughtering all of these people just so they could take their land, their houses, their vineyards, a land flowing with milk and honey? Listen to this out of Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is something that our soft hearts and hard heads need to bow in submission to, what God says here in Deuteronomy 9. He says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself and their cities which are fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, who you know and of whom it is said, we can't stand before the descendants of Anak. Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said. Do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, and say this, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. The Canaanites were not innocent. The Lord says they were wicked. And he was driving them out in response to their wickedness. And so in that regard, we can see that the conquest of Canaan was an act of justice Justice by a holy God upon a wicked, idolatrous people. So the issue of fairness then goes out the window, doesn't it? When we see this as an act of God's judgment upon an ungodly people. And I like Dale Ralph Davis. That's a name that I'm going to quote very often throughout our study of Judges because his commentary is so helpful. He says, the Bible nowhere claims the conquest will be palatable but it does insist it was just. Some of the things that we'll read about the conquest of Canaan are hard to read. 
Why the children? Why the women? God says very clearly that they are all to be driven out. And it was this very point which so many of the judges and the tribes failed to be obedient to. So before we get involved in chapter 1, let me just make one other point here. This is the pattern. Judges presents for us a people who have received great grace and mercy and deliverance from the Lord in the form of a judge and take it all for granted turning rather to the passing vanities of the world. And there is great danger in this cycle. What, what we see by the Lord bringing judge after judge was not for the betterment of the people. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 1 is as good as it gets in Judges. It's all downhill from there. So here are the warnings. This is from Andrew Fawcett. He says, repeated and successive declensions after frequent revivals degrade the impenitent lower than ever. What does he mean by that? He's saying getting yourself involved in this cycle of repenting before God only after he brings some kind of great chastisement for you. In the end, if you don't find Christ in all of that, in the end, you're going to be a twofold son of hell. That's what he's saying. We need to see that this cycle itself was an act of God's judgment upon an ungodly people. The, ne the necessity of judge after judge who fails is an act of God's justice tucked in behind the scenes upon this ungodly people. And to go back to this warning, I think a great illustration of this is from everyday life, right? And we've heard this before, what begins as a blister will become a callus given enough time. There's great spiritual truth in that. What pricks your conscience so violently now if you don't respond to it and run to Christ because of it over time will mean nothing to you. That's the warning of the book of Judges. They became, they, the people through successive generations became so accustomed to God raising up another judge for their deliverance, but it never really affected their heart. We're going to see that even this morning in this first cycle. The second warning for the church is this. When the church forsakes the Lord for the world, the world with whom she has sinned will then become the instrument of her punishment. That's what we see in this cycle. The people reject God, go after the gods of the pagan and the heathen. And then it's that very people that they have joined themselves to that become the instrument of their chastisement. The same principle applies for me and you. When we forsake the Lord for the passing vanities of the world, it's the vanities of the world that will then sit in judgment over us. Because we have dismissed the one true and living God. So with all of that serving us as introduction, I want you to, to give your attention now to the first chapter 
through the fifth verse of chapter two. And I'm going to break this down in, into three things. And I do that because the text itself breaks itself down that way, makes it easy for us. And remember, what we're reading here in the beginning doesn't get any better than this. It only gets worse. So there is the initial question presented by the people to the Lord after the death of Joshua. Now, granted, if you read over in the seventh verse of chapter 2, it talks about Joshua's death again, and it's like these first verses are the introduction, and then there's a bit of a rewind, and the story picks back up. So don't get confused by the timeline. One of the things that's hard to do in Judges is follow a very strict chronology because so much of it is, back, is going backward. Even some of the judges themselves overlap one another. But notice, after the death of Joshua, there, there's a point that begs to be made here. And the point that needs to be made is that the kingdom of God is not dependent on men. Exodus begins with a death, the death of Joseph. Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Judges begins with the death of Joshua. First Kings begins with the death of David. What we see there is while God uses men to accomplish his purposes, never is God dependent upon any one man. So have your favorite preacher in mind. Long after he is gone, the purpose of God will continue. And we're called here to, to remember to cast our eyes upon Christ because he and he alone is the author and finisher of our faith. Never in scripture. We have this modeled for us in Paul's epistles. Are we to ascribe such worth and glory to man that we began to dim the value of Christ and his word? So all of this is taking place after the death of Joshua. The question is put to the Lord in verse 1, who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The people know that they have at least been delivered from Egypt. They've passed over now the Red Sea and they've passed over the Jordan. They find themselves in the land of Canaan. Under Joshua's leadership, they have begun that conquest and it seems like some time has passed and now the Peopleites you know, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and all of those have regained some strength and need to be dealt with again. So the Lord gives them an answer in verse 2. Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Here is another of the themes of this book. The tribe of Judah is exalted Everywhere. The tribe of Benjamin, from whom Saul, Israel's first king, would come, is everywhere put down. The reason that the tribe of Judah is exalted is because Jesus, the Christ, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Even in Judges, especially in Judges, behind the scenes, though it's not hard to see, Jesus Christ is being exalted. The first question, who can go up and handle these Canaanites? Well, certainly it will be Judah who will attach himself to his brother Simeon, being full brothers 
And then there's this very interesting story, and this is what makes Judges so interesting. In the larger story, you get great detail about some otherwise very unknown people. Twice in chapter 1, we have that with this king called Adonai Bezek. Judah and Simeon went up against him. They fight against the Canaanites. The Lord delivered them into their hands. They killed 10,000 men. And they found their king and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and pursued him and caught him. And what did they do to him? They cut off his thumbs and they cut off his big toes. Is that an act of cruel and unusual punishment? Well, we only have to keep reading to find out. Because by his own admission, he says, I have done this to 70 kings. They used to beg scraps under my table, and now God has repaid me. So there was a total, initially, a total annihilation of this Canaanite group of people, even extending unto their king. If you fast forward through this first chapter, you find the continued conquest of Judah and Simeon. And then there's another introduction of great detail that we might ask, why is this here between Othniel and Caleb's daughter? In verse 12, Caleb said, whoever attacks Kiriath-sephir and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. So Othniel, Caleb's younger son's, Caleb's younger brother's son, took it and he gave him his daughter. Both of these seemingly insignificant details between concerning the king who had his thumbs and toes cut off and this Marriage between Othniel and Aksa seem to illustrate a point. And the point is, there is great blessing that comes to a people who are being obedient to the Lord. She asks her father Caleb not only for land, but for a spring of water. He grants it to her, and we're left to think that they lived happily ever after. Here's what Judah and Simeon did. In the rest of the chapter, not only did they kill 10,000 men, kill their king, they took Jerusalem, striking it with the edge of the sword. They killed the three sons of Anak in verse 10. They utterly destroyed Zephath in verse 17. They took Gaza and Ashkelon. They drove out the mountaineers. The Lord was with them. And then we come to the puzzling verse 19. Of chapter 1, the Lord was with Judah and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And we need to read that in the right way. And the right way to read that is they could not because they would not. There was no deficiency in the power of God operative in them. And this is the beginning of the downward spiral in the book of Judges. This is the beginning of compromise. This is the beginning of looking at the battle the Lord had called them to and beginning to consider the cost and weighing in their own minds, is it really worth it for us to go 
and lose so many soldiers and shed so much blood because of fighting against these men who have iron chariots and we are left to surmise that they had decided that it just wasn't worth it. And so they left them. The very next verse, verse 21, speaks about the children of Benjamin, and it tells us that they did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. You see the great contrast between the exaltation of Judah and the pitiful work of Benjamin. And here Benjamin sets a pattern for us. I'm going to run through these quickly. You'll find it all there in verses 21 through 27. Not only did Benjamin not drive out the people, neither did Joseph. Joseph struck the city Luz with a sword, but did not kill everyone. He left this one man alive. And what did this one man do? He goes off and sets up another city just like the one that had been annihilated, which would have necessarily ushered in false worship, pagan gods, all of those things. So then we have, in the larger story, we have these two men contrasted. One, the king, with his toes and thumbs cut off and dies. The other, a person who was given mercy and grace against the command of God, makes his way out and goes up and sets up the other city of false worship. So Benjamin and Joseph, Manasseh did the same thing. Though he did go so far as to put the people under tribute. Ephraim did the same thing. The Canaanites were left dwelling among them. Zebulun did the same thing. Asher did the same thing, but there is a, a little bit of a difference in the details here. Up to this point, it said the Canaanites dwelt among them. Beginning with Asher, the difference is now the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. It might be a subtle difference, but it's a difference nonetheless. Naphtali did not drive out all of the Canaanites, but put them under tribute. And then we get all the way down to Dan. And Dan, rather than forcing the Amorites out, Dan was forced into the mountains by the Amorites. And again, we have to know that there is nothing lacking in the power of God in and through and available. There is only an unwillingness to be obedient to the full because the price seemed to be too high or just not worth it. Great consequences, though. And this brings us to the second point. Partial obedience is total disobedience. Partial obedience equates to total disobedience. You, you can carry that down as far as you want to go. Parents, when your children partially obey you, it is not enough. They need to obey everything you've said. How else will they learn to live with the God who exacts so great amount of obedience desired upon them?
And in that, we show ourselves to be too much like these tribes who compromise. And then later, the consequences come. And it's important to note that the consequences here for this disobedience is not immediate. It's a slow burn. It comes slowly as the nation slowly dies a pitiful death, even while they are in the land that the Lord said he would give to them. In Exodus 23, this is what God said would be the consequence of their disobedience. He says, you shall, they shall not dwell in your land, speaking of the Canaanites, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So leaving the Canaanites, even though they were no longer a military threat, even though they had been put under tribute, and what that means is the Canaanites knew their rightful place. Even though they did not impose a military threat, leaving them was spiritual cancer. And the Lord had told them very plainly, if you leave them, you'll serve their gods and it will be a snare to you. Here we learn another important lesson. I've stated it this way, I hope it's understandable for us. Pragmatic success is spiritual failure. And what I mean by that is to have everything looking good on the surface. I mean, it looked okay, didn't it, to have all of these Canaanites under tribute? It looked okay for, for the people of God to have shown them their rightful place. We are stronger than you. You will serve us. But what had God said? Drive them out. Just because something looks good on the surface doesn't mean that it's not spiritual failure. That's exactly what happens in the book of Judges. What began as toleration became apostasy. Please hear that. You can apply that in your own life as an individual Christian, the life of your family, the life of this church. What begins as toleration leads necessarily to apostasy if something doesn't stem the tide. What seemed reasonable to them proved to be lethal. Living with Canaanites led to worshiping with and as Canaanites. Hear that last statement. Living with them led to worshiping with and even as Canaanites. Another person said it this way. Tolerate Baal's people and sooner or later you will bow at Baal's altar. The Lord knew this would happen. It's not a surprise. He told the people clearly, you are my people. Go and do this so that you will not be taken captive, not physically, but spiritually. And what happened? They refused and became idol-worshiping pagans themselves. All because of toleration and unwillingness to obey. 
we are subject to the very same things. That leads us all the way over now into chapter 2, the first five verses. And the point of these first five verses, I think, is this. Tears do not equate to true repentance. There's a lot of weeping here. They even go so far as to name the place they are the place of weeping. In verse 1, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. I take this, as many do, to be a pre-incarnate visitation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're given here his estimation of the people's actions. But not before he reminds them of why they are where they are in the first place. He says, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I also said, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But... Before we get into the contrast, let's just look honestly with what Jesus says or the angel of the Lord. Some don't see this as being the pre-incarnate Christ as I do. Nonetheless, the scriptures would have us that this angel of the Lord is speaking with great authority, assuming for himself that he can say, I did this. That's why many, myself included, think this is pre-incarnate Christ. He reminds them of why they are where they are by his own strength. And he says, in essence, I have and I am and I will keep my covenant with you. Then we get down into the but of this verse, the contrast, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Five questions asked to a disobedient, unrepentant people. Can you hear those questions in your own heart? Why have you done this? You know better. I told you better. I even told you what the consequences of your disobedience would be. And you still chose to allow the Canaanites to live amongst you. And then you even went and lived amongst them. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. Remember before where it said they could not drive out because of the chariots? This is the beginning of the judgment of God upon them. By leaving them unto their own strength. I will not drive them out from before you. But notice, he says, they will be thorns in your side and their gods shall be a snare to you. So their very presence leads to the presence of their tolerated idol worship. Both of these are going to greatly affect you. To which we apply the old adage, play with fire long enough and you will get burned. Right? Right? 
So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. That sounds so nice and so good, doesn't it? There is a repentant reaction of the people. Many people would, would appeal to Paul's letter to the Corinthians to say, if there's no tears, then there's true repentance. And if there are tears, then there must be true repentance. Tears are deceiving. What this smells of is a people sorry for the consequences being reaped and not sorry at all for the actions that brought on the consequence. Why do I say that? Well, skip down, if you would, to verse 11. I mean, we're just moving a few verses down in the story. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord their God, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods. So I don't think we're being too harsh to see this as a momentary at best and false at worst repentance based upon consequences. You might remember as a kid or, or parents, you know what it's like to have a kid who is sorrowful, not because of their actions, but because they got caught. Not sorrowful over their actions, but weeping and wailing because of the consequences of their actions. That's what this is. And it doesn't last long at all. Proving true. You shall not allow them to dwell in this land lest they make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. The angel of the Lord says here, their gods are a snare to you. What is a snare? A snare is, is a trap. And not all snares are hidden. Some are clearly visible. This is the kind of snare that the, the idol worship of the pagans were to the people of God. Clearly visible, but there was the thought in the people of God that said something like this, that we say ourselves far too often, I can deal with it. I can handle it. It's just a little. I know where, where to bring the stopping point. And then what happens? You start the ball rolling down the hill and you just can't stop it. That is the snare that entrapped the people of God. There was an unwillingness to remove the snare. They left it thinking they could deal with it. And they failed miserably. So what's the lesson that we learn from this first cycle? Remember the cycle? A time of peace, followed by provoking God, God raising up a judge, which is coming. And after the provoking of God and the judge is raised up, deliverance comes, the people of God dwell for a time in peace and then it doesn't take long for them to begin to provoke the Lord again. So listen to these verses. We've looked at these recently. Lord willing, 
The Spirit of God will drive them further and deeper down into our hearts. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I'll add to that here, and it is a snare unto you as the people of God. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And then Colossians 3, as I close. It's no wonder that the Lord, through his apostles in the New Testament, speak so, speaks so strongly to the fight against sin. Colossians 3, 5, put to death your members which are on earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you are to put off all of these. This equates to the Lord telling the Old Testament people of God, do away with all of these Canaanites or else they will ensnare you. So the question to ask yourself, have I driven out all the Canaanites in the land of my heart? By the help of the Spirit of God, have I pressed them outside of the boundaries of my life? If you leave them and don't deal with them, the same words of the angel of God are applicable to us. They will be thorns in your side and snares to you. Put them off. Tolerating known sin and sin patterns is dangerous. Martin Luther said it is never good or safe to go against your conscience. If the Lord is smiting your conscience about some tolerated sin in your life, repent. Look to Christ. Come to Him in faith. Put off all of these things and be renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where Christ is all and in all. The scriptures never call us to do something that we can't do. So if you read these verses in Colossians and their counterpart in Ephesians and think, I just can't do this. You're right in one sense. You'll never do it in your own strength. But the Spirit of God coming alongside of you will accomplish this in your life if it's your desire. But if we justify in our minds, I, I can do okay with this. It, I'll never let it get to the point where it's a snare. I'll keep it in its rightful place. I'll be able to walk away from it at any time. I don't have a hold of it that tightly. I can leave it. That's the beginning of the death grip of sin in your life. Look to Christ. He is the only one who can break it and put it in its rightful place.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to learn lessons from this book. Help us not to just see it as interesting history, true in every aspect, but would you by your spirit make application of it to our very heart, soul, mind, and body. Help us to see the deceitfulness of sin. Help us to see the destructive nature of sin. Lord, help us to see that what we begin seemingly by tolerating can in the end end in apostasy. Lord, how many, how many have slidden all the way down this slippery slope all the way into the depths of hell? Oh God, be merciful. Let it not be true of us. Let it not be said of us that we willingly chose to be disobedient. We're thankful for the ministry of Christ on our behalf. Thankful that he came, was perfectly obedient, fulfilling every point of your law, willingly stood in our place, condemned as a sinner, bearing our shame, our scoffing, dying our death, so that by faith in him and in the power of his resurrection and having defeated death and hell, we can come confidently before you. Lord, do your work in our hearts. We'll give you all the praise and credit for it. In Christ's name, amen.